Hello, this is Jesse Weiler from Autoramus Bulletin. This week I sat down with John Johnson to talk about his recent article in the bulletin titled Tradition and Betrayal Responding to Scandal with Adoration. This was a wonderful conversation and I got a lot of insight into what he was thinking as he was writing this article as well as more context surrounding the article. So without further ado, an interview with John Johnson. All right, I am here this week with John Johnson, who wrote a new article for Adoramus Bulletin titled Tradition and Betrayal, Responding to Scandal with Adoration. John, it is good to be here with you today online. It's an honor to be with you, Jesse. Thanks for having me on. I absolutely love this article. Um, I love everything that Adoramus puts out, but this was very poignant. And as I as I uh, discussed with you in, in the pre-show, very, very... Uh, apt for these times as we're trying to hunker down and figure out what's going on with the coronavirus. And I I love the paradigm that that you lay out for this whole thing between, you know, uh, good and evil, Judas and Jesus. It's just it's magnificent. That's very kind of you to say. And, you know, before we dive in, I'd love for you to kind of introduce yourself a little for the audience and tell me a little bit about yourself, who you are, uh, what you do, so on and so forth. Sure. So I wear a few hats, uh, principally a husband, father of four, and uh, professionally, I'm the executive director of a little nonprofit called the Albertus Magnus Institute that is dedicated to, uh, as we like to say, liberating the liberal arts. So it's part online school, part publishing house, and uh, even amateur podcast. And so that's... uh, that's one of my one of my roles. Uh, I've taught for years, uh, studied theology and philosophy, and uh, and so I'm grateful for the chance to have uh, written this uh, by Chris Carstens. He invited me to write this piece, and uh, I was uh, I was a little bit uh, daunted by it, but but very glad to see it published. You know, when Chris asks you to do something, you don't say no. It's just not an option. It's difficult to say no to him. <laughs> uh, so my first question is, what made you think about this article? I, I'm, I'm very interested in how this, how this came to be in your, in your mind. Yeah, frankly, uh, it's sort of a reflection on the contemporary uh, status of the church today. And so much confusion, so much... Uh, treachery, really, and so much scandal. Of course, you can look at the news and see this, mm-hmm. and um, and it's so well reflected in actually the the upper room on Holy Thursday, right? There's scandal, and what's remarkable is that just like today, there seems to be this ambivalence. That is, Judas is doing his treachery. Judas is betraying our Lord, and ten of the apostles in the room have no idea what he's doing. And they, not only do they not know, not only are they ignorant, but they credit him with either doing good work for the poor or something uh, good for liturgical purposes. So they credit him with doing good in the midst of his treachery. And this echoes a little bit too sadly and too powerfully today uh, that it couldn't be noticed. Yeah, it really exemplifies this idea of the quote unquote slippery slope. And I think that probably Judas wasn't always this way and he didn't always want to betray Christ. I think that's very obvious. But it's true. Yeah. But but he he somehow got there. 
little by little. And I think we see definitely how Satan works here. Tiny little steps, tiny little pushes and pulls uh, into the direction that he wants. And that slippery slope is very clear, like you said, especially with in, in perception of, you know, the other apostles and disciples. Um, that is a very clear representation that, you know, this being so far off doesn't seem like it's so far off in the beginning. Right. And like I say in the article, I think it's important to point out exactly how St. John in his gospel points us to Judas, because I think he does so rather systematically. And the very first time that John points us to Judas is in a surprising place. It's in the conclusion, the punctuation of John 6. What's it, John 6? The Last Supper discourse. Mm-hmm. And so we see that Jesus himself calls attention to Judas uh, as soon as he's done with this masterful teaching on the Eucharist and the real presence. And why is he doing that? I think it's because St. John wants us to know that the foundation, the root of this anti-charism that is apostolic betrayal begins with the rejection of the Eucharist and the rejection of the real presence. But more than that, the the feigned acceptance, the pretense. In other words, the crowd that day, we all know, we see in uh, John chapter 6, verse 66, the crowd leaves uh, because this is too hard of a teaching. Now, Judas stays, uh, but wouldn't it have been so much better for him to leave, right? He leaves in his heart, mm-hmm. but he stays, he stays, he wants to fake it to make it. He's got a good position of honor. People seem to respect him where he goes. He gets to hold the purse, And he's bent on this temporal revolution, this freedom from temporal oppression. And he doesn't believe, scandalized by the teaching of the Eucharist like the crowd is. But rather than leave with the crowd, uh, he leaves in his heart and then stays and pretends. And this is the bedrock of apostolic betrayal. Absolutely. And I think that we can see that, uh, like like you said, the scandal in the church. These people, we don't always know where, where their heart is. We don't know really who they are or what they're doing inside, because we always see this external uh, representation of the church, yeah. especially, especially when we get into the, the bishops and cardinals. And that's the thing. That's, it's very, that's a very a good observation on your part, because it's impossible to tell. And St. John is in on this because he, um, he points out in his book of Revelation, right? There's this cosmic battle between the beast and the lamb. And for us, we can read this and think, oh, it's going to be really easy to spot the beast for the Mm -hmm. lamb, right? The beast is going to be this mustache twitching villain, uh, you know, with fire and horns and all this stuff. But really the beast and the lamb as St. John portrays them are very similar in appearance. They both uh, ask their followers to receive a mark. They both have multiple heads and they both... Uh, they both have wounds from which they have recovered. They both demand worship. These illustrations of both the beast and the lamb are almost identical. And similarly, in the upper room on Holy Thursday, our Lord is giving all of his apostles this commission that, that he might be handed on. Okay, he gives himself wholly to his apostles that his apostles might hand him on. And the word for this uh, Greek paradidonai in Latin, uh, the infinitive is tradere, right? To hand on. But it's very interesting that the same exact word can translate to hand on and to hand over. So tradition and betrayal um, to the external eye are virtually identical. 
And that's why 10 of his apostles don't, can't tell the difference in the midst of it. Only one can see, that's St. John, the beloved disciple. And he can see because of what Aquinas calls his perspicacity, this penetrating mm-hmm. insight into our Lord's heart that is rooted in adoration. So the way we can tell the difference between the beast and the lamb, really indeed the, the difference between the beast and lamb, the one thing the beast can't imitate the lamb in is charity, is his love. And so that's why the response to apostolic betrayal has to be love. It has to be first adoration to adore as St. John adores our Lord's heart in the midst of his treachery, rather than responding in outrage or being scandalized oneself. There's many ways to be scandalized by the cross and Catholics on all sides of things can fall into one of the two forms of scandal. The one way to avoid that trap is adoration. Yeah, this really makes me think of that concept of the fact that Satan cannot create. He can only take things and manipulate them. And so you can really see like that parallel that his his divisive nature is to take something that looks to us like the sacred and warp it. And that's one of the ways that he gets to us. That's right. And he gives, uh, I think I said in the article, he, the, the beast can give everything but himself. Mm-hmm. Satan can give everything but himself. Uh, and the lamb is precisely, he, he himself is precisely what the lamb gives. That's all the lamb does is give himself. So that's how you mm-hmm. see the difference. And it really makes me think of that, the screw tape letters by C.S. Lewis about these these uh, strategies, if you will, to really lure somebody in that way and, and not being able to see from the outside and doing things that aren't so shocking right off the bat, but doing these, like I said before, these step by step, these little little by little actions. And, and you go on to talk about the difference in reaction and even kind of, you know, predicting what reactions would be if you know, say Peter were to be able to have this revealed to him, what was, what would his be, what would his reaction be? And I think that's where we can start to put ourselves in the story, so to speak, as you kind of wrote this out, because when we hear scandal in the church, what is our reaction? Do we want blood, so to speak? Do we want justice? Do we want mercy? How do we, uh, how are we supposed to fit ourselves into the story when scandal comes into the church? Great question. And that's exactly why it's so important to look back to the upper room, because we see this bombshell that our Lord uh, drops on the crowd, right? After washing their feet. And he says, one of you will betray me. Um, And of course, each of them are going, going to be handing him on. One of them is going to be handing him over. And there's this this uh, the understatement of all understatements in John's gospel where he says, like, they look at each other uncertain of whom he spoke, as if you're like, hey, I wonder who it is. But of course, uh, th- there would have been uproar in the room. There would have been these self-exonerative denials being hurled. There would have been accusations mm-hmm. being hurled. You probably think it's that Bartholomew over there, you know, look at him over there. And so everybody's going to be pointing fingers. And in the midst of this chaos something very strange happens that is St. John rests on his Lord in his Lord's bosom. And, and the first thing I'll say about this resting in the bosom is that John with this language of uh, being in culpos in the bosom of our Lord, he's bringing us back to his own prologue and his prologue ends by saying, no one has seen God except the one who is in the bosom of the father, the son. Mm -hmm. Right. But by John putting himself in the bosom of the son, he's 
furthering this syllogism that really he, John, because he's in the bosom of the son, is in the bosom of the father. He's resting in the bosom of the father. But that aside, in all the chaos, St. Peter gets this bright idea, right? Sometimes Peter gets a bright idea. Mm-hmm. And he looks at John, he looks at this kid in adoration, and he says, who is it? Okay, who is it? And John probably doesn't want to respond, right? He's in adoration. Nobody likes being interrupted in adoration. Uh, and, and But John obeys Peter, just like he runs to the tomb faster, but then stops and waits. He heeds Peter's question here. And so he asks our Lord in secret, who is it? Tell us who it is. And our Lord gives John and John alone a sign to whom I dip the morsel in. Uh, it's him. Now, what's important to know, and John is very explicit about this, no one else at table knew what was communicated between Jesus and John. And John doesn't even answer Peter. There's a way in which he answers him later in the end of his gospel. But at this moment, he doesn't answer Peter. And as you say, why does John not answer Peter here? Well, Luke's gospel tells us very clearly that these men were armed. They had swords. And so uh, if St. John, as we kind of want him to, right? We kind of want John to get up and say, Peter, it's Judas, get him. And what would happen if John said that? There'd be a bloodbath, right? It'd be like Mm -hmm. a Quentin Tarantino movie, which part of us wants. There's this cathartic desire in us that wants that to happen. But John resists that urge. And keep in mind, this is St. John who wanted to call down fire on the unbelieving town and have Mm -hmm. them smitten, right? And this, this fire that he wants to call down has to be transformed into another sort of fire. That's the fire of love. And he finally he finds that in the adoration of Christ. And with that, he understands Judas's blood is not the blood that needs to be shed. That would just further the mimetic chaos, the rivalry. He understands that the last blood that needs to be shed is that of the saving lamb. And so rather than identify Judas and turn him over for execution, he adores our Lord and is able to persist all the way to and through the cross. He's even made invincible through this adoration to ordinary martyrdom. All the other apostles would have to learn this love through martyrdom, as our Lord says to Peter on the beach at the end of John's gospel. St. John learns this love through adoration as the beloved. I, I love that. That is so amazing. And I, and like I you know, noted earlier, I mean, that would probably be my first reaction is to want that justice, to want that, you know, revenge for something that was so bad. And and my last question that I want to ask you uh, about this whole thing is that, yes, we this is an issue in our church. And it sounds like from what I heard from you, the best thing we can do is to sit, to rest in the bosom of our Lord when these things happen. Go go to God, go to Christ, because that is the only true known, and everything else will, will fill out its place around that. So I think that's a very good response. My question is, how, how do we navigate this scenario when it's all happening internally, just in and, our, in and of ourselves? Because within my mind, so to speak, there are these, you know, Judas elements of, you know, concupiscence. But then there's also these moments where I'm being transfigured by grace through the sacramental life. And so I think 
within all of us, there's that internal struggle for scandal. And I'm just curious as to your thoughts about how to navigate something like that internally. I don't know if I could have said it better than that. And that's exactly it. And I think the beginning of St. John's adoration, especially in this moment of our Lord's saving hour, the beginning of his adoration, when Jesus says to the crowd, one of you will betray me. This is not in the text. And so we're speculating, right? But I've got to believe St. John asks, could it be me? Could it be me? And Mm -hmm. I think he asks that in a way that none of the others do. And that's, that's the thing, right? Each of us have the capacity to be the Judas. Each of us have the capacity to be the Peter. And Judas and Peter are both scandalized by the cross in opposite directions. For Judas, the cross is not bloody enough. For Peter, it's too bloody uh, and and either, any of us can be scandalized in, in any of these ways. And it's like there's this beautiful, I don't think we have it in the Western liturgy, but in the Eastern liturgy, there's a beautiful part of the penitential rite where you beat your breast and you say, of all the sinners of whom I am the greatest. And so mm-hmm. as Catholics, the first, we all know this, right? The first sinner that we have to be concerned about, the first sins that we have to be concerned about are our own And those are the worst. Those are the ones. And as soon as we start looking at other people's, even if they are uh, clear and sure as day to us, we're doing something that is uh, moving in the wrong direction to point those out before dealing with our own. And that's why um, it might not be always the most prudent, right? There is a good time to speak up. Even St. John at the end of his gospel speaks up to Peter. Say, Peter, it is the Lord. Turn around, buddy. He's right there. Okay. When nobody else can see him. But in this moment, as soon as he sees the work of Judas, he is silent. And that, that's, that's really, when we see scandal in our midst, we, what do we want to do, right? We want to write angry letters to the chancery. We want to hammer away on social media. We want to be mad. We want to be outraged. And that's really not what's necessary. There's one thing necessary at this moment, principally, and that's adoration. And action will follow that. But if action is not rooted in adoration, it will be utterly fruitless. It will be utterly counterproductive and it will not bring consolation to Christ who thirsts for our company in his saving hour. And that is now. I I completely agree. And, and this was a very enlightening conversation. Thank you so much, John. I really appreciate it. And I'll put a link to this whole article in the show notes. And and you said you had a podcast. Do you want to give a shout sure. out to that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can learn more about the Albertus Magnus Institute and the work we're up to at magnusinstitute.org. And our podcast is available, I believe, wherever fine podcasts are available. So that's called the Magnus Podcast. And uh, yeah, reach out. Uh, thank you so much, Jesse, for the work that you do. I love the Adoramus uh, uh, Bulletin and the Liturgy Guys podcast. Uh, so really uh, keep it up. Be assured of our prayers. Great. All right. Thank you and God bless. Thanks, Jesse.